1908, the United States of America Congress, along with our president in that hour, set apart one day by formal congressional act of all things to honor motherhood. And I, for one, and I think all of you would join me in saying amen to that. Anybody with a brain and any moral fiber knows that if we ought to show the utmost respect for the institution of motherhood, then in commemoration, a tradition was started. A century ago, and for many it is still a tradition, that on Mother's Day you would give a carnation. A carnation because it's whiteness to symbolize the purity of a mother's love, its fragrance, her prayers. And just as the carnation does not drop its petals, but hugs them to its heart, even as it dies, so too our mothers hug their children to their heart with a never-dying love. When Mother's Day was initiated 100 years ago, it was a day when mothers were truly exalted. They were a special person in America. One of the men of those days, a great pastor, W.L. Caldwell, said, well, may we pause to pay honor to who? After Jesus Christ is God's best gift to mankind, mother. No nation is ever greater than its mothers, for they are the maker of its men. But what about motherhood in America today? Sadly, motherhood in our day has been devastated. A liberal government encourages, even pays for, a woman to kill her own child, to take a pill to the tune of over a million a year. The institution of marriage has been mocked by legalizing same-sex so-called marriage. And then over this past year, families have been utterly disrupted as tens of millions of children have been denied the opportunity of a safe, quality education by virus fear mongers. But I assure you today that God's standards about motherhood and marriage have not changed. Here's what it says in Hebrews 13 and verse number four. Marriage is honorable. Marriage is honorable. And since it is, then motherhood is honorable. A man influences society from the top down. A mother influences society from the bottom up. And both come together to create the most advantageous opportunity for the betterment of society. God has purposely designed the institution of motherhood as our greatest resource. Of course, motherhood is no picnic, as you might know. You gotta feel sorry sometimes for these precious ladies. Here's a few quotes I read this week. I had to laugh at them. Motherhood, because going to the bathroom is private, is highly overrated. <laughs> and uh, yes, mothers of teens understand why some animals actually eat their young. <laughs> And then this one, sometimes mothers get a little sassy. Mom, what's it like to have the greatest daughter in the world? <laughs> I don't know, ask your grandma. 
And, uh, and then this one finally is a little scary. A police recruit was asked during the exam, what would you do if you had to arrest your own mother? He said, call for backup. <laughs> so today, let's hear it for mom. God is good. <laughs> Let's all bow for a word of prayer, if you would. And as we pray, let's ask God to bless uh, this time together. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity. And Lord, we love moms. We love motherhood. We're so sorry, Lord, for our country, for our society, and how we have degraded this institution. We pray, God, that this church, these precious saints here, and Lord, those that are listening, would all stand firmly behind the beautiful institution that you have established Lord, help us to learn today from the wonderful story of Hannah about godly motherhood. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Scripture is clear. Motherhood is from God. Sarah, the mother of the promised seed Isaac, was the model of faith in God and complimented her dear husband as he spiritually led the family. Deborah, God called of all things a mother to the battle. And then by her prayer and by her wisdom, she was able to lead Israel to victory. And then, of course, there's beautiful, gentle Ruth. We've been talking about her on Wednesday or Sunday nights, that sweet spirit who, was sacrifi who sacrificed for God and was blessed by God. To be the mother of Obed, the grandfather of David, who was the seed of our Messiah. Yes, God is clear. Motherhood is highly esteemed in Scripture. But there is one lady God just delights in giving us a wonderful uh, biography of her great attributes, and that is Hannah. And so let's go, if you would please, to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel Chapter 1, Hannah is unique because uh, she became a mother, not just by giving birth, but by faith. Now, we're going to go through 1 Samuel chapter 1, and a little peek into chapter 2. There's no way to do a complete expository sermon on this passage because of its 28 verses. We'll be here a while. And so rather, we're going to take kind of a macro look, allow you to take a micro look later on. But let's get the background in our minds. The time, 11 centuries before Christ. The place, an incredible little slice of land known as Israel, Canaan land, about the size of New Jersey in America. The period is the period known as the Judges. Society is in turmoil. The populace divided. Com political confusion abounded. A leaderless country. Spiritual degeneracy had infected so many, and the ministry was corrupted. Friends, this was a trad, a sad and tragic hour in the history of Israel. And now we're introduced to a man. Let's go to verse number one. It says in verse number one, there was a certain man, and this man's name was Elkanah. Now, we don't know a lot about this man, gives the place that he was from, but Elkanah, we know a little bit about him in that 
The names mean something in Scripture. Elkanah means zealous for God. Verse number two does inform us a little bit about him and about his home wife, and that is that he had two wives, <laughs> two wives. So we at least know that he's not the sharpest pencil in the drawer. But anyway, we'll comment in a moment. Verse number two, and he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Penina had, no, had children, but Hannah had no children. Hannah, her name is, is the word for favor. Actually, Anna in the New Testament is the same word. Favor or graciousness. Penina means pearl. And so he had a pearl and he had this wonderful, gracious wife. And God in his sovereign wisdom blessed Penina with several sons and daughters. But Hannah had no children. As you can imagine, this was a great grief to her heart. Now, many people, especially those who are new to church or even those that maybe haven't done a lot of study, kind of scratch their heads about the concept of polygamy and say, oh, you know, that's just that crazy stuff in the Bible. But you need to understand that, yes, it was a cultural thing back then, and it was quite common, really, in, in many respects. But there was actually some good reasons behind it, not that we should practice it or not that even Jesus commended it. But there was at least some reason behind it. First of all, it served as a social security system. As that there were many more women than men. Men had died uh, very hard uh, labor, hard working there. Some had died in wars. And so it served as a way for these women to have a support system. And actually, uh, they were married. Uh, it wasn't like that they were just shacking up. These were people who were legally married. He couldn't just you know, jump from one wife to the other. And so God was patient in allowing this uh, part of culture. Jesus clarified, however, in Matthew chapter 19, it is not the best thing. I will say over the years, I've talked with a few folks. It seems like it gets in their heads, this whole polygamy thing. And uh, after talking to them for a while, though, it almost seems like they're kind of loophole lookers, you know. But I will tell you folks, don't get hung up on this whole thing of having more than one wife. It was just a cultural thing because there are some wonderful, great truths to understand here. Three admirable qualities of motherhood from the life of Hannah. What an amazing woman. First of all, she was committed to her marriage. I'm telling you, she was committed to her husband. Despite the situation and the arrangement there, not an ideal scenario. Society was in a mess. The churches, the temple was empty in her time. Her home life was complicated. But she said, I am going to be committed to my husband. And while the other gals in the village were looking for liberation, she was looking for consecration. What did she do to commit to her marriage? She took two very important steps. And these are the steps I think we can learn from today. First of all, she prioritized worship. Look at verse number three. She prioritized worship. It says, this man went out of the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Shiloh was just a town, not a big one, but it was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It did have a beautiful tabernacle there. God's law had prescribed that they would worship the Lord every week on the Sabbath. In addition to the Sabbath, 
they would go yearly to kind of a conference, uh, a, uh, a time to get together to really just kind of give some extra impetus to their Christian life. God has always had a, a pattern for worship. We are told in the New Testament, Acts chapter 20 and 1 Corinthians chapter 16, that we are to meet on the, they, the pattern was at least, and actually it appears that God wants us to do that, is that we are to meet on the first day of the week. And I want to amplify that for just a moment because I think you would understand why the situation we're in today. It said in the book of Acts, it also says in 1 Corinthians, that they gathered together. Now, then, like now, it was much easier to stay home than to go down there, meet in the temple grounds, or meet in a big open area, or meet in some of the larger homes. It was much safer to stay home because of the persecution, and it was certainly more convenient. They couldn't just jump in a car, and be in church in five minutes or ten minutes in an air-conditioned car. No, it was some walking, or they had to be on their donkey or whatever. It was something uh, not easy. Paul noticed that among the Hebrew Christians, there was kind of a tendency for some folks to lay out. And so he had to lay down the law. Hebrews chapter 10, he said, look, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together. And in fact, in Acts chapter 2, it says they actually met daily for a while. It was kind of a temporary thing. But I will tell you, folks, that to prioritize worship means that the first day, the first thing that we want to do is give God glory. Now, let's talk about Elkanah for a minute. Elkanah was not a perfect man. We'll see that in a bit. But it does appear that he was deeply devout, and he, even though he had some human imperfection. And I would say here that, you know, folks, uh, all of us, even good Christian people, are still humans, and we have human imperfections. I love the saying, years ago we adopted as we were starting our building here, especially with so many volunteers, especially with me doing a lot of things, and our, uh, our saying was this, that we will expect perfection, but we will accept imperfection. <laughs> and uh, we are going to strive to do the best we can. We're not going to strive to do a bad job. But if in the midst of all of that, our humanity or our lack of experience kind of shows up, we're not going to stress out about it. Now, I wish it wasn't that way. I wish that Elkanah was a perfect person. I wish that Hannah was a perfect person or Penina here in this story. But the fact is, even though we're not perfect, we still can prioritize our faith in God. Elkanah went to worship and his wife joyfully joined him. And may I say this morning, uh, brothers and sisters, and for that matter, for those of us that want to support our parents, you know, if your husband or your wife wants to make the spiritual and essential in the home, support them. If your husband is speaking the Bible to the kids, support them. Don't correct him, and especially when it's minor doctrine, <laughs> maybe even worse than that. But the fact is, especially in front of the children, Folks, the gospel will survive, and the gospel has survived us preachers for 2,000 years, and it'll survive if something goes a little haywire when your husband is teaching. The fact is, uh, uh, when we prioritize worship, that means we make it a very 
clear part of our family. Now, why is it important to prioritize worship as a mother, as a wife, and as a husband, as a father? Because there are three parts, if you want to say that, to every human being. Now, all of us have a body, you know that, but that's not the real us. That's kind of the house of our spirit soul. But this body is something that we put a lot of time and energy into. We sleep, we you know, get it ready. It takes a long time for some of us, you know, to get all bathed. And I don't have to spend a long time with my hair, but a little. And, uh, but you know, our body is uh, something that we uh, work out, we feed. Uh, our body is important to us. That's the first part of a human. Uh, theologians call this a tripartite of mankind. Three parts, body, soul, and spirit. The word soul actually is the word uh, for the mind. We get our word psychology from it. And so the mind has, uh, it has a will to it, it has emotions to it, it has a thinking part. And so we, uh, we educate that, we learn things. But for many people, that's where they stop. They work on the body, they work on the mind, and totally forget that there's a spirit. That's what differentiates us from a plant or from an animal. Now, animals are amazing. They have uh, these amazing minds. It almost appears they have emotions, but I don't guess they do. But I'll tell you one thing, they're just amazing, these little uh, pets we have. And, um, but they have a body and they have a mind, but they don't have a spirit. Plants don't have a spirit. They don't even have a mind. But God has made humans unique. And so when a person then spends all of their time on the body, oh, our children got to get fed. They got to, you know, get good, uh, you know, they got to make sure they sleep good enough and get them clean. That's body stuff. Then they need a good education. Okay, that's mind stuff. But what about the spirit? Even if that person, even if we were at the 100% level with the body, which probably we're not, even if we were at the 100% level with the mind, the soul as the Bible calls it, then we would still be only at 66% or two-thirds of where we should be. Any family that does not have an equal emphasis on the spirit as they do on the body and on the mind they are missing out one-third of their family, one-third of the quality of marriage, and one-third. No wonder people say, well, I just don't get it, marriage and family. And <laughs> If you're only at the two-thirds level, man, that's just, that's D level. And Ds are no fun. I'm, I want to be an A-plus for a family. That's, where, that's what I want to be. Now, I may not make it, but I want to try for that. So we must emphasize, we must prioritize the spiritual. And that's what Hannah did. She prioritized the spiritual. And even though we'll not find perfection, thank God, when we emphasize the spiritual, emphasize the spiritual, we will find protection. Because there's a lot of evil out there, and a spiritual family will protect its own. A spiritual life is not simply a superfluous part. Well, if you can go to church, fine. If you can read your Bible, fine. If you can learn about God, fine. No, folks, that's not, that's not the attitude. It must be as equal or more emphasis than our body and our mind. Folks, please get this. I wish I could just stop somebody and say, come on now. All you have forgotten God. 
And you just think it's, well, it's just my personal choice. You are, you are just messing up your marriage and your home by not prioritizing God. Folks, make sure that we emphasize that in the home. If your husband or wife wants to get up early to seek the Lord, don't be jealous of the Lord. And uh, let's, uh, let's support them. And while we're uh, saying that, let's not take advantage of our spirituality to avoid some action. Let me tell you what I mean. Some husband, for example, says, honey, I would sure like maybe sometimes, you don't have to go very often, but every once in a while, why don't you go fishing with me? And you're like, fishing? Sit there and watch you stare at the water? Oh, no, no, no. And uh, I have to go pray, honey. <laughs> no, let's not do that. Say, honey, if that's what you want to do, I'm with you. Let's go. How about scheduling it 10 years from now? We'll be happy to do that. And, uh, but the fact is, prioritize worship, but don't use God uh, um, for some kind of um, selfish idea. Number one, she prioritized worship. Number two, she emphasized affection. She was an affectionate lady. Verse number four, look at it. And when the time was that Elkanah offered. So now Elkanah goes to Shiloh as part of this conference, as part of this special service there. They have an offering time. It's all people have been giving for years as part of our worship. Now, the way that it worked was that, uh, like today, they would go there and they would offer an offering to the Lord. But they would always bring back some. Offer a portion, take back a portion. Does that kind of sound like tithing? That's what God based tithing on was you, we, uh, we give God the first tenth. We can give more, but we at least give God the first tenth, and then we live on the 90%. And so there's a back and forth. And so that's what happened in the Old Testament. They would give a portion. They would take back a portion. Then they would use that portion to eat with, kind of a symbol of God's provision. And so it says here that unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion. He doubled, tripled. He just gave her a big amount of food for her. And why? Because it says, verse 5, he loved her. He gave her so much food. Why? Was she a little too thin? No. Uh, by the way, did you hear about the wife who asked her husband, did I get fat during the quarantine? And the husband replies, well, honey, you weren't really that skinny to begin with. Time of death, 11 p.m., <laughs> Cause of death, COVID-19. <laughs> For once, very accurate reporting, amen, but anyway. No, it wasn't that Hannah was skinny. He, it says he loved her. He was deeply in love with her. They had a special affection for one another, not a mere fleeting emotion. The, the kind of love they had was a deep Bible love for each other. Was he perfect? No, he was human. He had his imperfections, but they prioritized worship in their life. They really loved the Lord. And as a result of that, he really loved his wife. And that was more than just some sentiment. It was real stuff. Here's what 1 Corinthians 13 says about love. The old 
Uh, English calls it charity. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Folks, even often the case is that it's the little things that deepen love and relationship. A box of candy to a wife is always nice, but sometimes the most meaningful things are not boxed and neatly wrapped. There are countless ways that we can show Bible love, real love, deepen our love in ways that our people will really appreciate, our wife will really appreciate, like simply reaching over and touching them. Just, it feels good and it's very healthy to the, the, all those little touch receptors. It's a wonderful thing, like complimenting someone, like saying something nice and saying that you're thankful for them. Simple, like smiling. As simple as smiling and having a pleasant conversation. Remember when you were dating, how gracious and courteous you were towards each other? Now sometimes I hear folks talking to each other Sounded like fingernails on a chalkboard. I mean, it's just nasty. Folks, we need to do the little things and create that love. And yes, not only was it the little things and not only was it just acts of kindness, but the marriage bed was certainly involved. And honestly, there are a lot of times, a lot of issues can simply be settled, at least for the husband, by those two just going to get in bed. And if you think I'm just kind of saying something off the top of my head, I will prove what I'm saying from the Bible. Look at verse 19 in this very chapter. So here they are. They've, he loves her. They are very spiritual people. They've prioritized their spirituality. Verse 19. So after the whole thing was over, they'd gone there. They'd gone to Shiloh. They rose up in the morning early, went and worshiped before the Lord. So they go to church. They returned. They came to the house to Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. The folks, to be blunt, they went to church, they came home, and they jumped in bed. And I'm telling you, that's exactly what the Bible said. They had this sweet affection for one another that was kind, it was loving, and yes, it included their physical love. She was committed to this marriage. He was committed to this marriage. They were committed with deep love, and they prioritized their worship. I read this week uh, a little letter from Ann Landers, an excerpt from it, and I was impressed and blessed. And I've, in my own way, seen this very example happen. This lady wrote and said, I'm going to tell you about a love story that I witness every time I go to a nursing home to see my loved one. I see a man there who, as I understand it, has spent the last eight years caring for his wife who has Alzheimer's. They've been married more than 50 years. He cooks and feeds her every bite of food that she eats. He has dressed her every day for all these years. They have no other family. 
She lost her baby, I'm told, at birth and never had any more children. But I cannot describe the tenderness and love that this man shows. I once observed him as I parked my car beside him one day. He sat in his old pickup truck for a few minutes after he had arrived. And then he patted down what little hair he had, straightened his threadbare collar of a shirt, looked in the mirror for one final check before he went in to see his wife of 50 plus years. It was as if he was courting her all over again. Before he called on his wife, he went there and he reached out to her time and time again. To me, this is an example of commitment the world needs today. She was committed to her marriage. He was committed to his marriage. Three admirable qualities. Second of all, she was committed to her master. She was committed to her Lord. She, even though had a complicated relationship there with that other wife in the situation, she was committed to the Lord. She gave herself to the Lord. She didn't go on social media to blame to blab out to the world how mistreated she was. She went straight to God's book, not Facebook. Look at verse number 10. She was in bitterness of soul. And she didn't get out there and create a blog so that everybody could, you know, see what's going on. She prayed to the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, Oh, Lord of hosts. That's the master. There are the hosts. And then there's the master of the host. She was committed to her marriage, and she was committed to her master. Now, Hannah craved a child. Why was she so intent on having a child? Because she knew that children are a blessing from God. And anybody who's normal loves children. They know what a blessing they are. David, in Psalm 127, King David wrote a psalm of instruction for his son Solomon. Now here's a king, and his son would have gold, would have jewels, would have money, would have accolades galore. And yet, here the king said, you want to know what my greatest treasure is, my greatest heritage, the greatest lasting legacy? It will be written by the people that follow me, my children. Look what it says in Psalm 127, verse 3. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord. They are the legacy, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Amen. I've heard people say before, several have told me over the years, say, Pastor, we so appreciate your ministry. We appreciate who you are. We appreciate your integrity. But I will tell you, your greatest work is your family. Your greatest work is your children. And that's because God says it is the heritage of the Lord. Children are our source of happiness. And that's why the more the merrier. Every reason to want one child is the same reason to want many. Look what it says in Psalm 128 verse 3. Thy wife shall be fruitful. That means a lot. By the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants around your table. If you have a big table, you want all these little plants around your table. She had a God-given desire to reproduce, to produce godly generations, to give something to the next generation. 
She was committed to her master, Lord. She didn't want just children so that she could fulfill some, you know, American dream, some Israeli dream. No, she had it for a reason, for God. Now, in this moment, I think we should remember, it's not God's will for all to have children. Some will be given the gift of singleness, even if it's only temporary. For others, in his wisdom, they marry, but God doesn't give them the opportunity to physically bear children. And still others are just not, for whatever medical reasons, unable to have a large family. But it's amazing to me that those same people often invest in children and become bonus moms or a mom to many, maybe younger brothers and sisters, maybe nieces and nephews, children of others in the church. I know one dear lady who had never had the privilege of having children. She by this time was uh, older and would never certainly have children. And she was reading in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and she was very troubled when she read verse 15, and she called me up and I was glad to be able to give her some uh, clarification on this because it's actually a wonderful truth about motherhood and true motherhood. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul is talking about leadership in the church. And he basically clarifies something here. And he says that as wonderful as it is to be out there serving the Lord and doing this or that, a woman's uh, true value is not in preaching in the local church, but rather, notice what it says in verse 15, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. Well, this precious lady uh, got a hold of me and she said, Pastor, I cannot be saved because I've never born a child. And I said, Sister, that's just not understanding that verse correctly, and I'm glad to be able to give you some clarification. The salvation here is not speaking about eternal salvation, but the saving of uh, the person in the sense of their significance or their value in life. Meaning, as a lady, you do not get your value from uh, leading a church or from pastoring a church or from preaching in a church. He said you will have greater value by bearing children. Now, even if you don't get to bear them with your body, you get to bear them up in your arms or you get to invest in them. Now, otherwise, we know that that verse could not mean that you have to actually have children. And that's the point here, that all of us, men and women, but especially here, we understand that ladies can have so much of a great influence on others. Maybe someone will be put in your home. Maybe you can reach out in the Sunday school or in the children's church or there's so many different ways. But involving ourselves and others, it's an awesome thing. Well, uh, the, uh, the feast is over. Uh, look at verse number 9. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. So there he is. Eli is the high priest. He's older by this moment. Everything's over. He's kind of decompressing, sitting over there by the post drinking some Turkish coffee and probably eating some pita bread. There he is, and uh, he sees this woman just praying. I mean to tell you, she is praying passionately, and uh, she is. She's saying, oh, God, I just uh, cry out to you. Verse number 11, oh, Lord of hosts, 
Give unto your handmaid. Look at that wonderful, sweet spirit. I'm just your handmaid, Lord. I don't have to be president. I, all these ladies today, you know, they want to be president, and I, I don't have any problem with that. I think when they're, but it's not about lady or men, just those with good conservative values. I'm for it, whatever. Um, but here's what it says I'm your handmaid, Lord. I pray, Lord, you'd give me a child, and I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. She was actually even asking for a son. And I'm sure she would have been happy with a son or a daughter, but here she says that if you will do that, Lord, I will give him back to you. And she was proclaiming a Nazarite vow over her child. Now, a Nazarite vow was an Old Testament vow described in the book of Numbers. It was usually a temporary vow. It was a vow where they would have certain things they would do, not eat certain things, eat other things, uh, not cut their hair, a few other little things, not touch a dead body. It was usually temporary for a few days, sometimes a few weeks, even a few months, but never lifelong. There were only two people in Scripture, other people than um, Samuel, uh, who had a, a Nazarite vow, and that was uh, Samson and Maybe she had uh, heard about Samson, or uh, later it would be John the Baptist. But it does say a powerful thing about her faith. She said, God, this is your child. Folks, listen to that. This child is yours. It is not mine. It is not my husband's or anybody else's. That child is God's. Folks, I remind all of us that our children are gods. They don't belong to us. They are gods. We do our best to superintend over them. We do our best to try to um, bless them. But it, that child is gods. That's why what I do with my life is one thing. But what I do with the life of my child is a whole other thing. I have a responsibility to grow them up to be godly. Did you know that God wants them to be godly, that's his plan for them. Look what it says in Malachi chapter two and verse 15. Malachi, the Old Testament, mighty Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Let me give you a little background here and then we're gonna read verse 15. The ministry was in shambles in Malachi's day. There were disgusting men who were in the ministry, profaning the priesthood, marrying multiple wives, heathens, treating their first wives unkindly, divorcing as often as changing socks. The result was, as you might imagine, the precious children from all these marriages were growing up without any solid godly leadership. And as a result, they were falling prey to every kind of idolatry and satanic incursion into the home. And so God was, and the prophet, they were incensed at what was going on. And look what it says in verse 15. Why is God upset? Because he seeks a godly seed. A godly seed. Why does God want a godly seed? Children that have strong values, traditional values, Bible values. Because today's sons and daughters are tomorrow's future. Now, folks, I tell you, we, uh, when I think about this, I, my heart hurts for America. Because uh, we want to see our young people to be godly seed. Thank 
God, for what's going on here at the home church, I see so many godly young people. Verse 13 now, Hannah, she spake in her heart, so she's praying, but she wasn't praying out loud. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she had been drunk. Now, I got to tell you, that's a sad commentary on the state of the uh, Christian faith at the time here of Eli, when somebody who was praying was thought to be drunk. <laughs> they weren't talking out loud. They were just moving their lips, and they thought they were drunk. They were, he was more used to seeing drunk people than praying people. You've got to be sad about that. But look what she says, verse 15. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Her extreme passion for the Lord was not caused by booze, but by the Bible. She loved God. And let me just say, folks, drinking and driving doesn't mix. But I will say drinking and praying doesn't mix either. Paul reiterated the same thing in the book of Ephesians. He said it is impossible to be both filled with the Holy Spirit and hard spirits at the same time. You just can't do it. Alcohol is no friend to the spiritual life, I will tell you for sure. And so here she was. She was committed to her marriage. She was committed to her master. Lord, I just pray, whatever you do, I want godly seed. I want to raise up a spiritual young man. And then finally, she was committed to her mission in life. Verse 22, but Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him, that he may be appear before the Lord, and there abide forever. She dedicated herself to educating her son. She was a homeschooling mom. Now, it wasn't about math, although I'm sure he got some of that. It wasn't about science or literature, although certainly nothing wrong with any of that. But she taught him the things of the Lord. And I want you to know when she did it. The Bible says before he was weaned. Now they were weaned a little later back then than maybe some are today. Maybe two or three at that age, maybe even four. But it says, so here we have a great example of early childhood Christian education. And isn't it interesting that up to the age of three or maybe even four are the most formative years. Psychologists tell us that 90%, are you listening? 90% of personhood is formed by the age of four. 90%. That's why it is so important to have your child in church. I mean, if they get born on Saturday, bring them to church on Sunday if you can. But I mean, get them in fast and be there with them and uh, put them in the nursery and to put them in Sunday school and uh, teach them early childhood Christian education. Look what Moses said. Here he was at the end of his pilgrimage, a hundred plus years old. He's a, they're about ready to go into Canaan land. Look at Deuteronomy 6 and verse 6. Here's old Moses, great man of God. He's, these are his, some of his last words. He said, he, he pleads with the people. He begs the parents. These words, I command you this day, keep them in your heart. Verse 7, thou shalt teach them diligently. Teach your family diligently, the Bible. Not haphazardly, 
Not if you have time. Not when you get around to it. Not, well, I don't know how to do it. No, find a way to teach them diligently. Talk of them when you sit in your house. Have family Bible time. And there's really no reason not to have family Bible time. Pastor Luke has put together this wonderful family Bible time program called Leading from the Couch. Everything you need, mom or dad, to be able to have family Bible time a few times a week, maybe every day. Talk of them when you're sitting in the house. And then when you're walking by the way, that means when you're out and about and you see a tree growing, say, isn't God good how he makes that tree grow? You can explain how God puts creation together, how the sun, you know, gives this and the water does this and always leading it back to God. Weave everyday life back to God. And then when you lie down, then before you go to bed, always pray with children. Always pray with children. Never just send them to bed. Pray with them. Or go there and sit on their bedside and say, how are you doing? just want to pray with you. And uh, we always had a bedtime. It was 8 o'clock. And people were always amazed that the children would, for the most part, stay in bed at 8. They might, we might hear a little bit of chattering in there. But uh, pretty soon they just got used to that. I can't imagine these kids, you know, getting up at 11 or 12 at midnight, still playing around, folks. Have a bedtime. When, you're, when they time to lay down, pray with them. Make them sit down there and go to bed. And maybe sing with them. But then it says, when you rise up, after breakfast, just kind of clear the dishes aside for a minute. And then have a, you don't have to have a four-hour church service. But uh, you could at least sing one song and maybe say one good word, read a verse or something. This is called training. It's way different than just telling. Solomon called it training. Look at Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Train up a child. Train them up. We're telling them, and often they're going down. We ought to train them. That's way different than telling. Training means effort. If you're training someone for you know, the Olympics, or you're training for something, there's a lot of action in that. There's some real repetitiveness in that. Train them. Train them. Look at this amazing mom. She did. She was a trainer. Look at verse 24. She trained him in spiritual things. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her and brought him to the house of the Lord. Take him to church in Shiloh. And the child was young. The Holy Spirit just reminded us Hey, we're not talking about a teenager here. We're talking about a little uh, primary age, a beginner age child. And as it ended up, of all things, she made arrangements for this little guy, Samuel, to apprentice as a priest, as a pastor. I mean, hard to believe at such an early age. But she was committed to her marriage. She was committed to her master and she was committed to her mission in life. My mission in life is to raise this boy up and to train him for the Lord. And boy, I mean, she put her effort into this little guy. Now she had to let go. And sometimes you got to just let somebody else, you know, have a part in that. And that's what she did. But I'll tell you one thing. She kept praying and she kept this little boy in her heart. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. This is a beautiful statement. Chapter 2, verse 19, moreover, his mother made him a little coat 
and brought it up to him from year to year. And they weren't, they didn't live a, a super long way away, but enough that it's hard to get up there. And brought him from year to year. And when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, and she brought this little coat up to this little boy of hers. Now, I'll promise you, when she sat down with that son, she grilled him. She's trying to find out, okay, what have you been learning? Tell me everything you've been learning. And she was listening closely. And who's telling you this? And who's going on? I mean, she was checking this guy out. I guarantee it. And she gave him that little coat. She kept, she had a mission in her life. She wasn't able to have as much time with him as she wanted, but she sure had a mission for her son. Now, brothers and sisters, what kind of an environment are we creating for the Hannahs in our life? Are we raising sons and daughters who will be followers of good? All people here this morning, I will tell us this. We need to have uh, honor for wonderful mothers like Hannah. And on this Mother's Day, let's commit ourselves to supporting godly mothers. Have you ever realized who the men that have influenced both politically and even religiously over the years, for the most part, have had godly mothers. Think of George Washington. His principles are those of government that we still follow today. She made it a practice to spend one hour every day in praying and reading, and then she would uh, educate her son. Abraham Lincoln, well known his relationship with his mom. In fact, his mother died when he was... 12 years old, and on her deathbed, you maybe have read the story, she made him promise that he would never touch two things, never touch alcohol or tobacco. She had seen uh, all kinds of bad things from that, and so he made the promise, and he never touched those as long as he lived. But uh, her influence over Abraham Lincoln was huge. And then the lives of John and Charles Wesley Perhaps two of the greatest reformers, their mom, Susanna Wesley, 18 children, and yet she always rose up early, spent some time with the Lord, and then she would home educate her family. And amazing. Folks, I tell you, the influence of a mom is from the bottom up, and they influence generations. Thank God for Hannah. Let's all bow our heads, if you would, please.